So we have a treat this morning um, with our sermon. Um, Some of you may not know this, but we have an Old Testament scholar in our community. Uh, Sarah Hall uh, got her PhD um, in in Old Testament from Cambridge. Actually, that's where she and John uh, met each other uh, back in the day. And um, uh, it's been a while since we've heard from her on a Sunday morning. I have asked her a few times, and she's had other things going on. In fact, she would be the first to tell you, uh, don't, don't denigrate her children's instruction role you know, to, to the favor of her, her scholar role. But she's, she's really both, and much more than that. Um, but uh, when John and I knew that we wanted to do this sermon series on the life of Moses, I just said... Can, can we hear from Sarah on this? Because she's really ex- excellent on Hebrew narrative. And um, so I just want to introduce her and introduce her as a dear sister. Um, some of you guys uh, may kind of think, oh, you know, Taylor, this is the guy who planted this church. Not, not, not really totally true. John and I planted the church. But, but that's not really true. Carissa and me and John and Sarah. So I, I'm introducing Sarah as a fellow church planter here. Uh, as an Old Testament scholar, um, as, a, as a children's instructor, uh, instructor and, uh, and let's just be prayerful and, uh, and learn what we can from the Word of God this morning. Amen. Thank you, Taylor, and thanks for the invitation. Um, this morning's passage is one of my favorites, so it's a treat for me to get to share about it. Let's pray. Lord, we pray um, that as we come to you today, that you would speak to us through your Word by your Holy Spirit in a way that cuts to the heart and gives us the freedom you want for us to have in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week, we heard about God miraculously rescuing his people, right? Through the Red Sea, permanently out of the reach of their enslavers. And when we catch up with them in the story that we heard this morning from Exodus 16, they're just a few days into their new normal, right? They're walking through the desert, and things are starting to get real. So they're between their old life of slavery and their new life in the promised land. And the in-between is not so easy. Does that sound familiar, right? We're also between our old life of slavery and our promised new home. So there's a lot for us to learn here by paying attention to what happens next in the story of Exodus. And the very first reality that the Israelites find themselves in after the singing and the rejoicing of Exodus 15 is the situation of not having enough of what they need. So before we turn to the passage, I just want you to take a moment to think about this. God's people were facing a situation where they genuinely didn't have what they needed. First it's water at the end of chapter 15, and then here in chapter 16 it's food. So what about you? Is there anything you find yourself without enough of right now? Maybe it's money or help or employment, or energy, or community. Now, of course, sometimes we misdiagnose our need, right? We say, I don't have enough time, when what we really mean is, I don't have enough self-discipline to not binge Netflix every night, right? (laughs) But most of us are um, facing legit, actual needs much of the time. Or we have seasons where the Lord leads us right up to the brink of desperate need. So how would you finish this sentence today? I just feel like I don't have enough blank. I'm going to give you 30 seconds of silence, and I want you to think about that. How would you finish that sentence? I don't have enough what?
you to bear these needs in mind as we look together at Exodus 16. And if nothing comes to mind right now, then just listen and put Exodus 16 in your back pocket for the next time you're in a season of need. But I want to look at two patterns in this story, the pattern of human grumbling and the pattern of God's provision. So if you could turn now to Exodus 16 in the Bibles in your pew, and whoever finds it first, can you shout out the page number for us? I forgot. What was that? 58. Okay, page 58. So first, the pattern of human grumbling. When we face any kind of need, our first response is often grumbling, complaining, blaming. It's generally our default response to need. The Israelites face hunger, and what's their very first action step? Look at verse 2. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now notice who they grumble at, their leaders, right? The people who they think should have the power to prevent them from being in this needy situation. Now, I don't know about you, but I do exactly the same thing. I'm in need, who's to blame? My husband, my boss, my pastors. I, I do this all the time. I just did it on Tuesday, you can ask John. Um, <laughs> So who's your fall guy when it's grumbling time? Who do you blame first when you feel like you don't have enough of something? Moses, of course, tells the people that they're not actually blaming the people they think they're blaming. Look at verse 7. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And he continues at the end of verse 8. Do you see? What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So grumbling against their leaders was really grumbling against the Lord. Why? Because the Lord picked their leaders? Because he led their leaders to lead them into this spot? Because the Lord is the one whose job it is to provide for them? So need was an issue for them to take up with God, not with people. And the next thing I want us to notice is the content of their grumbling. They pick up two themes here that carry on through the next 40 years of their grumbling in the wilderness. It's like two light motifs that they circle back to again and again. And I'm going to call them if only and to kill us. <laughs> so first, if only, or here in verse 2, it, it's would that. If only. In other words, we have a better idea. We would have done it so differently. At Kadesh Barnea, the people say, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. At Meribah, they say, if only we had died when our brothers died before the Lord. In other words, this stinks, and I would have written the script so differently. And usually they're longing for, like, a previous situation, right? So throughout the book of Numbers, we hear, we were better off in Egypt. Why did we ever leave Egypt? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Let's choose a leader and return to Egypt. In other words, Lord, we would prefer an earlier set of circumstances to the one you have us in right now. If only we could go back. So here in verse 3, have a look at it. The Israelites add their own post to hashtag if only, right? <laughs> would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. So if only we were back in Egypt eating meat rather than in this wilderness facing hunger. Now, they may have lost a little bit of perspective, right? They may have slightly rose-colored glasses for their past, 
But don't we do the same thing? We forget the pain of the past. We idealize it. And um, we uh, prefer the predictability of our previous circumstances over the freedom that we're offered now. The past was abusive, but at least it was stable, right? So if the first hashtag is, if only, the second hashtag is, to kill us. And this refrain comes up over and over again in the wilderness. Here are a few examples from Exodus and Numbers. Why did you bring us into Egypt, up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Why did you bring the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And here's my favorite. The Lord hates us. So he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the land of the hand of the Amorites to wipe us out. This is ridiculous, isn't it? They're essentially accusing God of genocide. So here at the end of verse 3, have a look at it. We have the same accusation. You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is your plan, Lord? So do you recognize the sort of misconceptions behind these grumbling themes? If only, and to kill us? The misconceptions are, we could have written the script better. We were better off before. And the Lord is not for us, but against us. We were better off before? Not true. The Lord is not for us, but against us? Not true. This is misinformation. But it's what God's people and we are tempted to assume when we're facing need. I could have written the script better. God's not for me. So three patterns of grumbling we see. It's our leader's fault. I could have written the script better. Sure seems like God is out to get me. Those are our patterns of human grumbling. But God, who is rich in mercy, <laughs> responds even to their grumbling with provision. Look at verse 12. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So God does not provide for these people in the way they expect. And I want us to see three things here, too, about the way that God meets his people's needs. Three patterns of provision. First, provision is supernatural. Second, provision is daily. And third, receiving provision takes practice. So first, God's provision here in Exodus 16 is supernatural. See, when we're in need, we usually think, how is God possibly going to provide for me in the way I have in my head? Right? But the point is, he usually doesn't. I'm pretty sure nobody envisioned manna when they were like 100% convinced that they were going to die of hunger. They were probably thinking, how the heck are we going to get 100 miles to the next oasis where we can find dates? Right? But God provides in a way that they didn't expect, that they didn't even recognize when it happened. Look at verses 14 and 15. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So God's provision here is supernatural, right? It doesn't depend on the normal patterns of how life works, 
right? His hands are not tied. His arm isn't too short. All of our assumptions about what is within the realm of possibility are usually wrong. God thinks and works way outside the box, outside the realm of our imagination, right? His provision is supernatural, so we don't need to freak out when there is no natural way forward. And you know this. The Bible's full of stories of supernatural, unexpected provision, but I just want to briefly share with you one of my own stories. Halfway through my time in seminary, I spent time one summer teaching in southern Uganda. And I emerged from that summer really wanting to be free to serve wherever the Lord wanted to put me after I finished my master's degree. But there was one obstacle. I still had undergraduate student debt. So I wasn't really free to just take off to anywhere and do some low income or no income thing. And as I prayed about it, I felt specifically prompted to start praying that the Lord would just completely deal with my student debt. And my prayer partners told me later um, that they basically thought I was crazy, but they agreed to pray with me for that anyway. And we began to pray for my student debt to just be paid off. The next summer, I spent a few weeks volunteering at a youth camp ministry that I'd been involved with for years. I was doing youth ministry at the time. And one weekend, the spouse of one of our camp staff members came to visit. He was a lawyer, and he came up to me after one of our leaders' meetings and said, Sarah, I've just been asked to administer this trust fund for one of our clients. She's an elderly woman um, who wants to support seminary students who are doing youth ministry. You're in seminary, right? Like, do you have any educational expenses you need help with? Long story short, within a couple months, I had a check in my hand made out to Sally Mae for the entire amount of my student debt. It was paid off in a day. And that's not usually how it works. <laughs> that wasn't a predictable way for the Lord to settle my student debt so I could be free to serve him anywhere, right? We learn in this story of manna in the wilderness that the Lord is capable of supernatural, outside-the-box provision, provision that's not predictable in any feasibility study. It's not how it always works. Honestly, it's not how the Lord provided for either of my siblings' college educations. He provided just as kindly but differently in more kind of natural ways. But manna reminds us that the Lord can provide supernaturally. He's not limited by what we can envision, is he? So provision is supernatural. Second, as we see in the story of manna in Exodus 16, provision is daily. So look at the text again in verses 19 through 21. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Okay, so this manna event was a culture-shaping, paradigm-setting object lesson for God's people about his provision for their needs, right? And one of the major features of this massive divine provision was that it was one day at a time. They could only gather in the morning for that day. They couldn't even gather it all day long. And if they tried to save it for the future, it spoiled. So God set up this miraculous provision in a specifically one day at a time way, on purpose. 
And centuries later, when he came in the flesh, he taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And he said, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Provision is daily. I find that when I'm freaking out and grumbling about my need, it's really good for me to step back and ask, do I have enough for today? Because that's what God has taught me to ask for. That's what Jesus told me to focus on. And I'm actually disallowed from worrying about things beyond that. So the lesson of daily bread is like baked into God's provision of manna in the desert. Provision is supernatural. Provision is daily. And finally, receiving provision takes practice. Trusting God for what we need takes practice. We're not naturally very good at it. So even with God's miraculous daily provision, the Israelites still needed a weekly reminder that getting what they need was dependent upon God and not on them. That they didn't have to work to slave away nonstop in order to have what they needed. Look with me at verses 29 and 30. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So the truth of God's ability to provide is easy to forget. God's people needed a reminder every week. Now, before too long, God's instruction about taking a weekly Sabbath, a full day off of work, would show up in the Ten Commandments, right? But the whole idea of Sabbath was introduced here first in the context of God's provision for their needs. Once a week, God gave his people double provision so they could rest. The Sabbath was like a weekly reset, a reminder that provision was God's job, not theirs. And I would guess that when we struggle to keep the Lord's instructions about a weekly Sabbath, it's usually because we're convinced that if we rest for a full 24 hours each week, we won't have enough of something. So maybe you think that if you take a weekly day off, you're not going to have enough favor with your colleagues or your boss. Or maybe you won't have the grades you need or the money you need or the order in, that you need. But the message of Exodus 16 is that your resting doesn't inhibit the Lord's ability to provide enough. He can double provide on another day so that you can take day seven off. Do we believe this? That what we need actually comes from him and not from our nonstop activity. One of the very first times I ever took a Sabbath intentionally, I was in college, and um, God permanently imprinted that reality of double provision on my brain. It was my junior year of college, and I had a new Christian friend who took the Sabbath seriously, and the Lord was kind of using that to get on my case about my striving and my lack of rest. So during one exam week that spring, I had decided to spend the whole weekend studying for an exam that I had on Monday. And I spent all of Saturday in the university library at the same table. Um, and after a long day of studying, late in the afternoon, I can still remember like exactly where I was sitting. Um, I heard the Lord tell me to take the next day off, Sunday, not to study, just to rest. And I started to object. I had only covered half of the material. I was pacing myself perfectly, right? But the voice of the Holy Spirit was so clear that I couldn't argue for very long, so I did it. I took Sunday off from studying, 
um, which is a really scary move from my type A kind of overachieving self to make, um, to only half prepare for a big exam. But I was sure I was hearing the Lord. So I went into the exam on Monday, and wouldn't you know that every single thing that showed up on that exam was something I had studied on Saturday? Everything. The Lord completely provided for me on Saturday so that I could rest on Sunday. And had I spent Sunday studying, I wouldn't have gotten ahead at all. I would have just come into the exam a lot more tired. Now, I think the Lord knew that I'm such a strivy little creature by nature that I needed to get that lesson in my head like loud and clear right off the block. Um, that when we work nonstop, we're basically saying to ourselves, the only way I can have enough is if I rely on myself and provide for myself. And it's simply not true. Um, so that exam was about 27 years ago. And as you can imagine, with a dramatic start like that, I have been taking a day off once a week ever since. And the Lord has continued over and over again to show off his ability to provide for me anyway. Why would I work for seven days when the Lord can provide for me in six? But honestly, I'm still so often tempted to believe that if I really stop for a whole day, something or other is going to fall apart. And in those moments where I need a reminder, this isn't super spiritual, but it helps me, I usually sing to myself the amazing words of Eliza Doolittle in the musical My Fair Lady. So I say to myself, Sarah, there'll be spring every year without you. England still will be here without you. There'll be fruit on the tree and ashore by the sea. There'll be crumpets and tea without you. Art and music will thrive without you. Somehow, Keats will survive without you. And there still will be rain on that plain down in Spain. Even that will remain without you. Do we really believe, do you want to believe, that God's faithful provision for you and your family depends on your nonstop activity. So the Sabbath is a gift which does a lot of things, but the very first time it shows up in the Bible is in the context of provision. God's people can rest, unlike slaves, because God will meet their needs without their nonstop effort. God, unlike their Egyptian taskmasters, doesn't demand incessant work from his people. Unlike the pagan gods, the living God does not need or expect his people to provide for him. He will provide for them. Do you see why God ends up calling the Sabbath like an eternal sign between him and his people, an everlasting covenant, in other words, a permanent deal with them? Because it's one sign of a very, very oh-so-different relationship between God and humanity. It's different than anything they'd experienced. So provision is supernatural, provision is daily, and receiving provision from God takes weekly practice, a weekly reset, a reminder that our provision depends on him and not on us. So let's just think through the application of this passage. What do we do with all of this? What does it mean for our lives? I think it means that when we face need, when we find ourselves in a position where we don't have enough, we're invited to do two things. The first is to name that need to God, to bring our need to the Lord instead of grumbling at the closest person or grumbling at our leaders. And as we bring it to him to resist the hashtag misconceptions, right, that we could have written the script better and that God isn't for us but against us. 
So we start not by grumbling, but by naming our need to a good God who has led us and loved us so well. And then the second invitation is to take a weekly Sabbath, 24 hours off of work. It helps our hearts to get the facts straight about provision. Now, there's a good bit of freedom in the New Covenant regarding when and how we observe a Sabbath rest. But the basic idea of the Sabbath remains the same. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Are we doing this? If not, we might ask, are there any of the other Ten Commandments that we treat as irrelevant or optional for Christians? The Sabbath is a gift. Why not receive it? Jesus said it was made for us, and he kept it. He didn't always agree with the Pharisees and how they interpret it or keep the extra rules that they added about Sabbath observance, but we never once see him breaking the Torah's instructions about keeping Sabbath. So the Hebrew verb Shabbat, from which we get Shabbat or Sabbath, simply means to stop. So what if we started to refer to the day of Sabbath as a day of stop instead of a day of rest, right? Rest is like a derivative meaning. If you've stopped working, then you can rest. But the first two meanings for Shabbat in the Hebrew lexicon are literally to cease and to desist, <laughs> right? And I mention this, I think it's important because I think we've probably all had Sabbath days that didn't feel that restful. So maybe we got in a fight with our spouse, or the kids were sick, or the weather was terrible. Um, it wasn't like the perfect day of self-care. <laughs> but we obey the Lord in the Sabbath just by stopping, because it says to him and to ourselves, you're the one who provides for me. You can double provide any day you want. I don't have to work nonstop. It honors the Lord when we simply stop working, regardless of how much fun we have. So because God is able to provide for you, you can cease and desist, right? Because God is not depending on your work for him, you can stop. Because your heavenly father is not a slave master, you can quit once a week. It's like a whole new take on quiet quitting, right? Sabbath is a day of stop. And the Anglican writer Tish Harrison Warren asks the question, what if Christians were known as a countercultural community of the well-rested, people who embrace our limits with zest and even joy. Honestly, I see this in so many of you, in the way you know how to be joyfully finite, limited, confident in the Lord's goodness. But I long for that to be truer and truer of all of us. So I want to end just by sharing one more story Seven years after that exam study day in my college library, I moved to England to start my PhD. And I joined a small Christian fellowship group in my residential college. Um, and during my first few years there, a pattern began to emerge. After church on Sunday, there would be this discussion about the afternoon. Who wants to go out for lunch? Anybody want to go punting? Um, should we go to the botanical gardens? And week after week, one friend after another would peel off saying that they needed to write a paper or work on a project or study for an exam. And I would be left there with the only other Christian in our fellowship who took a weekly day off. His name was John Hall. <laughs> so, um, 
So John and I spent a lot of Sunday afternoons together on the river or hiking or reading books outside, kind of just thrown together because there was no one else to rest with. I mean, he was also wonderful. But, um, and as most of you know, the laughter is because John's now my husband. But I want you to think with me for a moment. What might have happened if I had spent those Sunday afternoons trying to get ahead? Would I really have been getting ahead in the Lord's purposes for my life and ministry? While I was scurrying to like stay on top of the immediate daily work, would I maybe not have been falling behind in the Lord's most important work for me? So Exodus 16 reminds us that we have legitimate needs which the Lord is willing and able to generously provide for without our nonstop work and in spite of our grumbling. So praise the Lord. Amen.